this series that I've been on, and if you're a guest with us, it's okay, as today will be still connect with you, I believe. But if it piques your curiosity, you can go back and listen to some of the other messages that, from this series. But my intent uh, is that I believe we're in a divine moment where God is positioning and posturing things for his church to be strong and faithful witnesses of him in today's hour. Uh, that what you see in the chaos and the volatility of our world, I think that the church has the answer, Jesus, for this. But my concern is that the church previously, and in some cases today, has uh, tried to stand more on shaky partisan politics rather than the steady ground of the character of God, the steady ground of the eternal word of God. And when the church speaks and acts, we wanna be faithful witnesses of Jesus, not just pawns in the hands of partisanship. And so uh, I have an intent to point you to Jesus and let him transform you. Um, And one of the most important things I can do for you as a pastor in pointing you to Jesus is to teach you how to pray. Learning to pray, learning to engage with God uh, in personal fellowship, but also engaging with your word. And as the word points you to Jesus, Jesus is the living word that it's in that relationship you're transformed. And so I, I am an advocate for learning to pray the Psalms. It's not an easy endeavor and you're not gonna be able to do it quickly. And when you do it, you're going to start and you're going to get thoroughly confused. That's just kind of the way it has worked. Um, and it's because we're engaging with something that is beyond our carnal understanding, but nonetheless invites us in this, in this kind of a practice. And so uh, what I've intended is by showing you from particular Psalms, these are God's word to us for us to, in a sense, in our praying, we give back to God. We learn how to pray with his word, not just pray with our emotion or pray with our thoughts or mind, but we learn to pray through his word. It does transform us. It doesn't just change the way we think. It changes the way we live. It changes how we believe and how we relate to God. And so this series I've just wanted to kind of park. There's different ways of communicating the scriptures. You can, you can do topically, which is what most, most uh, ministers do in today's hour. We can take, trace a topic through scripture and help you understand whatever that topic is and what that means for you. I'm all for that. I love doing that, especially love uh, showing you the threads that tie all of scripture together. I enjoy doing that. But there's also a purpose in parking somewhere in scripture and really diving deep into what is being communicated to us. And in the Psalms case, how we learn to pray this does change how we think, how we believe, and how we live. And so we we talked through Psalm 93 and understanding God's sovereignty, understanding God is king and what that means and what that looks like. Psalm 46, the next week, where we looked at how do we pray? How do we live? How are we not afraid when all hell breaks loose? Which felt, you know, like a lot like today, (laughs) Uh, that our world today, just seems like all hell's breaking loose. Well, how do we live in that moment? And our encouragement is that we can live without fear in the midst of chaos, And then uh, last time, Psalm 110, recognizing that it is through Jesus that God is at work. It is Jesus who is king and also Jesus who is priest, that just as king and we submit to his kingship, we submit to him being king, um, in an effort to try to bring his kingdom, we have to recognize that our best efforts often make things worse. And so before we can make things right, We need to be made right. And we need to learn what it means to be made right. And from that relationship, then we can now uh, bring God's justice into this world. And so today I'm gonna talk about community and kind of some of the outworking of this is what is God doing and how does the church act? And so to do that, I wanted you to see through this whole series about prayer is that the primary purpose of prayer is not for you to get God to do what you think God should do for you. It's not to arm twist him. It's not to try to manipulate him. It's not a quid pro quo with God. Um, Prayer is primarily about relationship. And it is within the context of that relationship with God that you and I are transformed, that we need to be transformed. Um, We need to be made right. And then he needs to make us right in the fullness of our lives. In every part of our life, we need transformation. And so it's in the context of relationship, not a program not, not religious dogma, not ideology that we are transformed. 
It is in relationship with God that we are transformed. And prayer is the primary way we engage in that relationship. And engaging in the word, doing both those together, really helps. And pri- prayer primarily needs to be about being with God. The church needs to learn not just to be parrots of religious vocabulary, just talking Bible, but actually being people of power and character and the Holy Spirit. We, to do that, to live that way, we have to actually know God. We have to know his character. And so prayer is not primarily about asking something from God, but being with God. And if, and if we can learn that, then when we speak, and when we act in this world, and the church needs to speak and act in today's hour, we're not just going to be a religious version of the world, which is my concern right now, is the church is acting and behaving a little bit more like the world, just with a religious veneer, rather than full of power um, and full of the love and character and grace and truth that is in the Lord. And so, We're doing that through diving into Psalms that teach us how to think, how to pray, how to live. Psalm 133, these three simple verses is one of the ways we work this out. I'm gonna read all three verses and then we'll just dive in and and I'll show you maybe some things that are there to help you grow in what God is doing in our lives. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers, and by implications, they're sisters, when brothers and sisters dwell in unity It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there, the Lord, and here, Lord is all caps, so that's the covenant name, Yahweh. For there, Yahweh has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. One of the interesting things about scripture is that it is incredibly subtle, And uh, it invites you to kind of work for it a little bit. It's just the way scripture works. And these three simple verses, it sounds nice. There's some imagery in there, makes you feel good. Woohoo, life forevermore. That sounds great. But how much is going on here is, is quite incredible. And what that invites us into, into something incredibly difficult. And what you need to understand is that to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, you need to know that community is non negotiable. When you are born again, when you confess Christ, you are born into a family. You are brought in as a member of the body of Christ. Not necessarily like church membership, but a member of the body of Christ. You are a part of a family. Eugene Peterson says that no Christian is an only child. God bless those only children. There is a certain way they are formed and developed, but... You guys are pretty familiar with that. There's just, you, community is not really just extra credit for the people who are extroverts. It's like, I love this Jesus thing, but you know, you, you've heard the, man, I love Jesus, but I'm not so hot on the church, right? And that's, that's like telling a groom on the wedding day, hey, you're pretty awesome, but your wife, mm. See how that works out for you. <laughs> no, no, community really is an integral part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So the question is not whether you should or shouldn't be a part of a community. The question is how well are we doing community? And anyone who's been broken by relationships, who've maybe had toxic relationships in their life, um, it would make sense that you're real skittish about this, that you're just not sure about it. And that's okay. Everybody's on a journey, uh, and I'm not demanding you be somewhere you're not. I am saying, though, but where you are, if, in, if you're in isolation, that's not where you ultimately need to be. Because we need human relationships. Human relationships are a critical part. Us being in relationship with one another is a critical part of your faith coming to maturity. It's an integral part of you growing in what it means to follow Jesus and being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it convenient. I don't know if you've met people, but they're rarely convenient or easy, (laughs) Um, but it is necessary. And there's a word that is used in this Psalm to describe the goal of community. And that word is unity. 
And that word there has a sense of togetherness and really it can be understood as one. That there are many that do not lose their individuality, but yet when they're together, live and function as one. There are still many, but it's as one. It's one, but it's still many. And so this is where um, we have to understand where we are going and not just be critical about where we've been or where we're at. But what I would say is that the people of God for most of our history are very terrible at this. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church. Chances are, whatever church you have been a part of has been, let's just say, less than in unity. Divisive, filled with strife, mean-spirited, cliquish or even cultish in some ways, where it's like we, we gather together in the name of Jesus, and yet we are so mad at each other about all sense of nonsensical things. And yet that doesn't withhold the fact, it doesn't change the fact that God's goal with the community of the church, the family of God, is unity. Even though in and of ourselves, we, we are moving towards strife and self-centeredness, that's why I address that a little bit, is that our, our default gravitational pull is towards self-centeredness and we need the word of God to uncenter us. We need Jesus to uncenter us, to bring us centered in Jesus. The, uh, there's a uh, commentator on the Psalms by the name of Tremper Longman. He says this, strife demands more energy, whereas peaceful unity means the corporate body can reach common goals with less stress. If individuals cooperate, then their efforts are multiplied. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a group that actually was cooperating well, but there is a synergy to that cooperation. There is the ability to reach a goal easier and quicker when there is cooperation and unity and strife just makes things more difficult. Our lives are going to be full of stress. That's just the nature of living is that there's a tension in living that brings a measure of stress. And there is some measure of that tension that is good for you. You didn't know that? There's some measure of stress that, that, that is good for you. If you think of um, like a guitar string, that there is a certain measure of stress that is appropriate for it to sound right. Too much and it breaks, too little and it just falls flat. So there is a, an appropriate level of stress we need in our lives to not make us self-centered, to keep us trusting God. However, <laughs> when there's strife in relationships, it adds um, a manifold amount of stress. And so recognizing that, the tendency... Of our, of our lives is that we just need to avoid that stress at all by separating ourselves. And yet that's not the goal. Somehow we have to be able to work in community and be in unity despite the fact that each of us drift towards self-centeredness and strife. We have to figure out how to do this. We have to see that human relationships, relationships with one another is non-negotiable. And there is actually some things that can be good in this. What is the word that is used in verse one to describe a community that is in unity? It's good. It's good and it's pleasant. We don't live in community just tolerating each other's existence. It's like, I'm not, I'm not filled with hate. I don't, I don't hate the people around me. I just avoid them at all costs. <laughs> I don't necessarily dislike them, but I would really rather not get the chance to know them enough to know if I dislike them or not. So I'll just keep them safely at a distance and be pleasant in my to have pleasantries, but not really get to know anybody. I'm just tolerating each other's existence. Um, you know, I, I'm raising, my wife and I are raising five children uh, from the ages of nine to two. Uh, and so let's just say life is loud at this moment, especially since our two-year-old is a boy. Holy cow. Um, I forgot, we have, we have one other boy. I had forgotten what a two-year-old boy is like. Whew. 
man. And so there is lots of noise and there is a high potential for strife. And so sometimes, sometimes in, in, in the midst of strife, sometimes I just want them to just shut up. If you, right now, like I would be content with just tolerating each other's existence silently for a short period of time. So yeah, okay, so that's, that's better than strife. Um, but it's so much better when everybody's getting along, kids. Ah, it's so much better when we're all getting along, especially uh, we have a four-year-old and a five-year-old girl right now. And uh, they play wonderfully together. And then something happens. Someone said, and they're, they're not the same kid. I mean, they are, they are totally different. Uh, and especially I'll, I'll take my four-year-old aside. She's, she's a pretty strong-willed uh, little girl. And I'll say, sweetie, um, you know, we can't talk like that. You don't talk to your sister like that. She's your best friend. And she goes, no, she's not. <laughs> she's my sister. <laughs> so yeah, okay. So, so strife, yeah, we don't want that. But what, we, what God really is after is what he calls good. What he calls good is community. Now your Bible is is like a hyperlink. I don't know if you, you know, web pages that are highlighted blue and there's a hyperlink that takes you somewhere else. Your Bible is full of hyperlinks. And when you're reading one place, it's bringing so many things cross-referenced into that. And this is one of those places that is hyperlinked. And when you hear this phrase, especially if you hear it in Hebrew, the word good there is the Hebrew word tov. And it brings you back to Genesis 1. Really, if I could, if I, I mean, as much as possible, I try to show how everything in your Bible gets tied back into Genesis 1 through 3. Your entire Bible is contained in Genesis 1 through 3. The entire Bible is about the outworking of Genesis 1 through 3. And so the more you can go back there to see what's going on, the better. Well, the word God uses to describe the world he creates is not the word perfect. He uses a word seven times. And it's the word good. He says, this is good. This is good. This is good. And he caps it off the seventh time saying, this is very good. This world that he creates, it's very good. And then the God who creates and describes what he creates as good in Genesis 2 says something is not good. So in a good world, something is not good. The only thing God in Genesis 1 and 2 describes as not good it is a human in isolation. And so God brings a human to human relationship and says, that's good. In that case, it was a marriage, a man and a woman. And the two, but if you even look at the end of Genesis 2, where Adam describes this, says, this is what we're after. The two shall become one. That there is a two-ness and yet a oneness, a oneness and yet a two-ness. And you lift that not just from marriage, but community is that what is good is humans in relationship with one another in which that community is living as one, functioning and working as one, not diluting the many, not turning it into just some conglomerates where there is no individuality, but each individual being a part of a whole that functions and lives and works as one. Marriage is, is a prototype. It's a small sample size of what really is to happen with a large community that the many live and work and function and grow as one. He says, that's good. So a human in isolation, that's not good. And the introvert in me, I, by personality, am wired towards introversion, which is basically to say, it's not that I don't like people. I don't consider all introverts as rude insensitive jerks, okay? We might act like it sometimes, but that's not who we are. It just means that, that introverts don't get refueled by being with people. They refuel their energy from being alone. And I recognized as someone who is pretty darn introverted um, that I use that as an excuse to live in isolation from people. It was a whole lot easier to live inside the comfort zone of introversion than it was to actually follow what the Lord instructs me in is to be in relationship and community with others, even if that's uncomfortable and inconvenient. Now you extroverts, you also, just because you get energized by people doesn't mean you have healthy relationships. Extroverts can easily be shallow and, you know, I'll just be nice. 
So he describes it as good and pleasant. That does not mean it's easy. He just says it's good. Which is to say relationships are usually our most difficult task. There are a whole lot of things that are a lot easier than being in relationship. But yet doesn't change the fact that God calls it good. Which is to say then, only through the Lord can we truly be in unity. This is not something that we in our human efforts are going to be able to achieve. That's impossible. And the manifold broken relationships we see in our world are only evidence of that reality. That true unity cannot be humanly achieved. This is, you can kind of see this little imagery here. Another Psalm commentator by the name of Derek Kidner. He says this, true unity, like all good gifts, is from above. It's bestowed rather than contrived, a blessing far more than an achievement. What you see this here is a little picture that Psalm 133 is painting. If you look at verse two in the first half of verse three, you see two images for unity. These are similes. These are uh, metaphors, examples of what unity might look like. Um, And each of those three, there's a verb used. And if you see, it's all downward descending. The oil that is running down on the head the oil that runs from the head down, running down on the collar, the dew that falls down on the mountain. What is that doing? It's showing you that to see where this unity comes from, you gotta look up. It comes down. It's not something contrived from ourselves. It's something that God gives. These two images are used to describe what unity is like. When we see it, when we feel it, when we, when we show unity, it looks like these two things. These descriptors, one oil, Oil in scripture often is a metaphor or an example. It's used as an analogy to talk about God's presence and God's spirit. Literally though, if you were hearing this in that day and in that time and in that region of the world, that region of the world is very dry. And so oil, olive oil was used for hair care, skin care, things like that. But it was also mixed with sweet spices, sweet herbs and spices uh, and, and in that mixing together, when a guest would come over, an act of hospitality would be to anoint their heads. So what would happen is when a guest came and you would anoint their, uh, their, their head with oil, there would be a sweet smelling fragrance that would fill the house. And so unity is like the smell, sweet smell of hospitality and good natured relationship. But it isn't just any person that the oil is being poured over, it's the head of Aaron. There was the priestly ceremonial act where the high priest, Aaron, would be anointed with oil and that would anoint the priests for the priestly duty. Now, the simplified version of the priestly duty is to bring or represent the people before God. You bring people closer to God and you represent or communicate God and his word to people. You were a mediator for God. In a sense, you were the physical embodiment of God's presence and work. So what unity would look like, the image that's being painted is when you see a priest at work and smelling the fragrant oil on them, when you see a priest at work doing the job of bringing people to God and God to people, that's what unity is like. Unity is like the presence of the Lord being, being embodied right here amongst us. The presence of the Lord would be seen through the priest and unity is like that sweet smelling fragrance that we're we're experiencing the presence of God. Then the second image is one of the dew, the dew of Hermon. Hermon was the highest mountain peak in that region, about 125 miles north of Israel. It was a little over 9,000 feet. And it was known for its abundant dew every morning. And that's a dry, very dry climate in that, re- in that area uh, and very little rainfall. And so you would see kind of this dry desert, but then you'd look up at the mountain and see this green. And they would attribute that to the dew. The dew would bring the sense of freshness, a sense of fruitfulness. Uh, that that you, When you would look at Mount Hermon, you would see that green and you would see that that dew brings a sense of freshness and fruitfulness. But it isn't just the dew of Hermon on Hermon. If you look at verse three again, 
part A, the first part of that, the dew of Hermon, it says that falls on the mountain of Zion. Physically impossible. It's a 125 mile difference. Even in today's technology, that's not gonna happen. So, so something is happened, something happening here with the imagery that's trying to get you to see something besides just do in Hermon. Zion there was the spiritual center of the world where God's throne and presence was embodied in the temple and upon the cherubim and the Ark of the Covenant. And so the spiritual center of the world was in Zion. And so as the dew of Hermon soothes and refreshes the dry land, so the unity of God's people is refreshing to the dry and spiritual land. And we live in a spiritual wasteland right now in our country. It's dry, it's parched. And all we have is division and hatred. And usually the people who decry hate can often be the most hateful people. And the people that are calling for unity are often the most divisive people. And the church is just playing the game. They're just picking a different side. And that's not what the church is called to. But we can't be called to have religious rhetoric in today's age. We need more. We need the power of God. We need the presence of God. And that doesn't happen through partisanship. Apparently what happens is when it happens when there's unity. Because there, where there's unity, that fragrant, uh, refreshing fruitfulness that comes from unity, there, verse three, the second part, there God commands the blessing, life forevermore. Two things that only God can do. God commands the blessing and it is the quality of life that is only found in God, life forevermore. We hear that and we might hear there God commands a blessing. And I'm sure that's true, a blessing, but that's not what it says. It says the blessing. Well, which blessing is the blessing? This should rewind you back, especially to the Israelite people who would hear this originally, should bring you back to Genesis 12 and the covenant that God makes with Abraham and the blessing that he puts on Abraham. This is the blessing. In verse three, God says, I will bless those who bless you and anyone who curses you or anyone who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is something, maybe another time we could just talk about how much I can be emphatic about this. What does, how does God feel about his world? What does God want to do for people? God wants to bless people. You need to know that God is not angry at this world and want to destroy it. I don't know what you've been told. I don't know what preacher, well-meaning maybe, is telling you that God's just mad at the world and he just wants to crumble it up and throw it in the trash. That's not what scripture is showing. What God wants is to bless the, the, the world right there. If you read through Genesis right there, Genesis 11, you have humankind in total rebellion. And Genesis 12, God blesses a man to call out for a family in the midst of all these other families. This rebellious, disobedient, divided world what does God want to do for those families? He wants to bless them. He's going to bless them a particular way though, through the family of Abraham. And so what Psalm 133 is poetically imagining and praying is that the people of God dwell together in unity because the people of God dwelling together in unity, God commands that blessing upon them. The people of God are never blessed for their own sake. They are only ever blessed for the sake of the world. You and I are blessed, but not for ourselves. We get to be included in the process. Thank you, Jesus. But it is not exclusively for us. God blesses us for the purpose of blessing the world around us. Where does God command that blessing? On the people of God that are in unity. Are we individually a part of that? Absolutely. But not in isolation. And so not only does he command that blessing, life forevermore, eternal life is expressed in a community that dwells together in unity. You could say the quality of heaven 
is foreshadowed. The quality of heaven is foreshadowed in the people of God in unity. Because if you look at, at, at what heaven is like, and some of the clearer pictures we get is in Revelation. You look at Revelation chapter 4, chapter 11, chapter 19. You see continually where the people of God are from every tribe, every nation, every people, every language. Eternity looks like all kinds of different people dwelling together in unity. When the people of God, despite what makes us different, even despite what we disagree on, not letting our disagreements become divisions, when the people of God dwell together in unity, it foretastes what heaven is like. It foretastes what the kingdom of God actually is like. That's, and that only happens when the people of God are in unity. And this is why this is humanly impossible. It cannot and will not happen by human effort. Again, like I said last time, our best efforts usually quite often make things worse. So how in the world are we gonna do this? Well, as I showed you pulling from Psalm 46 verse 10, where the second command in Psalm 46, God says, be still and know that I am God. That word know there, how we see that come to fulfillment is in Jesus's prayer in John 17. John 17 is actually called the high priestly prayer. So if you think of Psalm 110, that Jesus is, is considered the priest and you lay that over, overlay that on John 17, you see what our high priest is doing for us, what he's praying for us. And this, in this prayer is the only time I see eternal life defined. It's described in other places. It's certainly utilized in other places, but it's rarely defined. What is eternal life? Jesus defines eternal life. The quality of eternity in time. The quality of life eternal in time. What is that? He says that they might know you. To know God. To be in intimate fellowship and relationship with God. That foretastes what all of eternity is like. So that they might know you. In that same prayer though, he does not keep eternal life or life that is in connection with God just at an individual level. It is at an individual level and you could say it's at a personal level, but it is not at a private level. Everyone is invited into personal relationship with God. The Bible knows no private relationship with God. And there's a difference. It's not just semantics the difference between a personal connection and relationship with God and a private relationship with God. In the same prayer, Jesus defines and describes eternal life as the intimate fellowship with God. He also prays this in verse 20. Jesus saying, I do not ask for these only, that is the 11 disciples that are currently his disciples when he's praying this, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. That's 20 centuries later. 20 centuries later, we are the ones, I believe in Jesus. And it's based on the apostolic witness of the disciples. He's praying for me. He's praying for you. He's praying for 21st century American church. Yes, global church, but you and I are part of this. What is he praying? What does he pray before the Father for? that they may all be one in unity. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How does the world believe in Jesus? Through the unity of the body of Christ. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus's prayer was for the unity of the church, that the church be one. 
to not be divided, one of the biggest, there were two, two big divisions in the early church. One was between Jew and Gentile. Race, ethnicity, and culture was one of the biggest divisions. What Jesus is praying is that race, ethnicity, and culture not divide us, but that despite that, not absolving culture, ethnicity, and background as if those don't matter, but not letting those differences be divisive. That even race, culture, and ethnicity be one, as you and I are one. And the other one is economic divisions, the rich and the poor. And the New Testament, especially James, pays very careful attention, Jesus and James. He says, you don't favor the rich or the poor. You don't favor anyone, but they are one. That despite economic differences, Jesus's prayer is that we be one. Unity is how the world sees that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, how in the world are we going to live out that kind of unity? Because I don't know if you've met people, but they're tough sometimes. No, I'm the only one. I've met a few tough people. You're just gonna have to believe me on that. (laughs) The two images that are used as descriptions of unity, I believe also are prescriptions for how we work out unity. The first one, oil on the head of Aaron. That's a priestly act. You and I in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, are called a royal priesthood. There's about five other places in the New Testament that call us either a kingdom of priests or priests unto God. That's the easiest place right here is 1 Peter 2, 9. You and I are called a royal priesthood. What that means is that anyone and everyone that calls on the name of the Lord, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever that is, despite economic status, despite gender, despite race, despite culture. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord is saved. They are given the Holy Spirit. Jesus does not withhold his Holy Spirit from people of certain colors. He does not withhold his spirit unless you hit a certain economic bracket. He does not withhold his spirit even until you hit a certain maturity level. One of the struggles and and work of of pastoral ministry is recognizing that God anoints immature people with his Holy Spirit. He does not withhold his spirit because of immaturity, which is to say, remember, oil represents the spirit. Anyone who's been given the spirit is ordained by God as a priest. There is no special priesthood class in the New Testament. You are just as much a priest in your world as I am in this one. You and I are priests. You are my priests. I'm not yours only. We are priests of each other. What difference does that make in our relationships if we can see that the other is my priest and that my priestly duty is to bring you closer to God and communicate God and his word to you. But it is not for me only, it is for you. You represent me before the Lord and you communicate God's word to me. What kind of a difference would that make in our relationships if we actually saw each other as each other's priests? We are each other's priests given the responsibility to be a priest for each other. One of the ways I was trying to work this out like a spiritual discipline and I'm doing a really mediocre job. I'll be honest about that. Um, but a way that I wanted to start working this out, especially outside the church, because I, I mean, I, this is, I've, I felt this particular calling um, to, to be in pastoral ministry, um, but recognizing that um, this isn't just something within the church. So one of the ways kind of spiritual discipline I started practicing is before I go into a restaurant, recognizing that I am a priest for that waiter or waitress. I just recognize that waiters and waitresses, if, if they're even treated remotely kindly, they're usually only treated for a function, not as a person. And often we're just, we're just rude to, to wait staff. 
Um, so I, I started recognizing, I started practicing that the power of the Holy Spirit in me is the greatest power and force in the universe. That there is no environment, no spirit that is superior to the Holy Spirit that resides on the inside of me. And so wherever I go, I am bringing the most powerful force in the universe. And when I'm, wherever I'm at, I am the other, the other person, I am their priest. And it changes the way you treat people when you recognize you are, you are Jesus to them. Now you're not their savior, you're not their redeemer, you're not their deliverer, but Jesus is embodied in you and I. And that I represent Jesus to this person right now, but I also intercede for them before the father. Unity is cultivated when we actually recognize our priestly duty for one another. And what Jesus describes, he makes it pretty simple. In John chapter 13, the only other way the world sees that we are the disciples of the Lord Jesus, he gives us in John 13, verse 34 and 35, where he says, a new commandment I give you, love one another. Not by the world standards, because the world standards of, of love is if you think like me, I can love you. If we're in the same tribe, I can love you. If we agree on most things, I can love you. And he says, no, you, you elevate the standard of love far beyond the world human standard. You bring it up to Jesus' standard. He says, you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus loved people more immature than him, which was every human being. Jesus loved the ones who murdered him. Jesus loved the one that hated him. He loved them. And he says, you want the world to know you're the church? You want the world to know that you follow Jesus? Let's get beyond religious rhetoric. Let's get beyond religious programming. Learn to love one another unconditionally and sacrificially. The priestly duty for one another. Then the second image of do. There's probably lots of ways of understanding this, but the simplified way would, is to say, just like do brings a sense of refreshing and fruitfulness. So the Holy Spirit is doing something fresh and unique in each person. You can't predict the Holy Spirit in anybody else. And what we, what we are called to do to cultivate unity is activate the Holy Spirit in each other. As a priest, we sow the word of God into each other, but in unity, in relationship, we're excited to see fresh work of the Holy Spirit. Just like the dew is fresh every single morning, we are excited and passionate to see God's fresh work in each other, to not try to predict each other and certainly not control each other, but to just pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is doing in each and every one of us and cultivate a fresh expectation for that. Never get bored with another human. Every relationship will deteriorate as soon as you get bored with another human. But, the, but every human is a unique work of God and the Holy Spirit is working uniquely in each and every one. And so just like the oil, just like the dew, so we are like priests, so we cultivate an excitement and passion of the Holy Spirit to bring us together in unity and there God commands the blessing. When we as a church learn to do that well, we fulfill Jesus's prayer and the promise of God on Abraham that we are blessed to be a blessing. The world needs a unified church, not because somehow we have something to be right about, but the way the world is blessed is through God blessing his people. And we gotta stop seeing ourselves as trying to get blessing for ourselves, but to recognize we are blessed for the purpose of blessing the world. This world needs a blessing right now. And unity is our, it's one of the most powerful. I don't know if it's the most powerful witness. It's one of the most powerful witnesses in our world. It's one of the very few Jesus says is a witness to the world learning to love one another, to not let our disagreements cause division, that we can disagree and yet be in unity. The dominant ideology of the world right now that has that is overtaken most major 
systems of society, academia, news media, Hollywood, and most political systems, and even a measure of business systems, is an ideology that demands conformity. And that ideology structures society intentionally for division. That ideology, if you wanna look into it, it's originating in something called critical theory and it works its way out in 10 different branches. One of them is critical race theory. The whole structure of that ideology is to structure the world in subgroups of oppressor and oppressed and different groupings of oppressed. And the entire objective of that ideology is to divide people and get the oppressed sufficiently angry to to revolutionize. It's, It's an ideology bent on revolution. The only intended outcome of that ideology is revolution. It's division, it's divisive, and it's demonic. But the church needs more than religious rhetoric saying that's bad, bad, bad. When the church has a tendency to cannibalize its own. How many YouTube channels are devoted to calling out heresy hunters and we're just, we're so divisive and mean-spirited and we cannibalize ourselves. Is that going to solve this? Is that going to bless the world? No, not at all. And yet, you and I, in our daily lives, we don't have to bear the full weight of the salvation of our country or the world. What we can do is reconcile with each other. What we can do is forgive. What we can do is listen. Things like racism, it's real. And it's a sin. No matter which direction it is, racism is a sin. It needs to be called out as a sin. But it's like every other sin. Where it resides is not primarily in systems. It resides in the human heart. And only Jesus can heal the human heart. That's why our ideology is not what's going to unify us. It's not doctrine, it's not programming, it's not even vocabulary, it's Jesus. Only Jesus can reconcile brokenness. Brokenness before God, brokenness with my fellow man, brokenness between races, brokenness between the rich and poor. Only Jesus can bring reconciliation. And rather than trying to tackle this whole thing and trying to out-argue people, no, instead of trying to out-argue people, out-love them. Because there's a lot of people afraid right now. There's a lot of people who have been hurt. A lot of people who are deceived. A lot of broken people. That has existed all along. It's just news right now. But it's always been there because the brokenness of sin and the human heart has always been there since Genesis 3. And the only hope for our world is not a church that gets partisan. As if this will all be solved if I get my particular politician elected this election cycle. The way I see it is we're in it for about 50 years. Because it takes a long time to change hearts. Now Jesus can do in an instant what can take us decades to do. And we're going to always live for that. But I don't know if you've ever been in a human relationship. Those are complicated and need a lot of the Holy Spirit. And if you and I can learn to love one another, one of the ways we work that out here is we get you in small groups. Believe it or not, learning to be in a small group with people who are not just like you, people who are not always going to agree with you, but learning how to work through relationships, learning how to work through hurt, learning how to work through confusion and deception and even disagree, but commit ourselves to the unity of Christ. That moves us in the direction of being the fulfillment of Jesus's prayer that we might be one. And that's what we're committed to. 
And so as we launch life groups, we encourage you, get in one, take a small step. It could take some courage, but it's worth it. Take a step into a life group. You can do that through our app, through online. Um, You can fill out a connect card. And if you're just not jiving with any one of the life groups that that you see right now, start your own. We have a process for you to help you do that because we're committed to cultivating unity, even though it's costly. It will cost us something, but anything worth having costs you something. And we wanna do the hard work of being in relationship with one another and committing ourselves to being in unity because that, that is one of our strongest witness. The other one is martyrdom. And if I have to pick, I'm gonna pick unity. <laughs> there may be a day where we don't get to pick, but for now we get to pick and so I'd pick unity. So let's work for it. Amen. Would you stand with me? Please take that step today. Just a step. It's worth it. Might be hard. Might be challenging. Could be difficult. It's gonna be worth it. And it might not work out the first time, but it's worth it. Because we're in this for a long obedience in the same direction to see the kingdom of Jesus come and the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God commands the blessing on a unified people. That's what we wanna be as a church. Father, we thank you and we so appreciate what you've done for us in Christ Jesus because this cannot and will not be through human effort, but you give us your spirit. And so we thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading and guiding us into all truth, strengthening us and empowering us to be vessels of unity to not get caught up in the flesh that gets angered and outraged so easily, but to listen to you, Holy Spirit, on how to work toward unity, unity in our homes and our marriages, unity in this church, unity in this city, unity beyond this city in the state, nation, and world. May the church be the vessel of unity. And we do that simply by submitting to you, Jesus. So we submit to you, we surrender to you. And I pray that each of us are drawn closer in relationship and connection with you. For only in relationship with you can the love flow out of us to one another. So may we continually be obsessed with you, Jesus. And you lead us on the journey of transformation. That this divine moment that we be faithful in stewarding the moment and the time you give us because your heart is to bless this world and you bless this world through blessing your people. So may we be faithful to steward that blessing and be a blessing to this world. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.